It's Sunday the 9th of October, and in 2011 we're getting ready to record episode 70 of the Cood Street Podcast. Hello, Gary! Let me start that again. Oh! (laughs) Start over again, Jonathan. I mean, you've you've already intimidated me by saying it's episode 70, like we're supposed to have something in mind for episode 70. Well, I've got to say, I was listening to the latest writer on the, the Critic podcast, Gary. With, with our good friend and recent guest, Ian Mond. Hello, Ian. Uh, and he was saying that they've just recorded episode 12, and they record monthly. So that's the end of their first year of podcasting. And he's, mm-hmm. he, wants to, he doesn't want to do episode 13. He wants to do, like, episode 1, season 2, which I think is a kind of cute little conceit. But, yes, this is episode 70 because, yeah, we've been going for a long time. <laughs> we could just renumber ourselves like comics. Well, that, you, we could do. We could have a reboot. We could reboot. Yes. How would you reboot the podcast? Make it interesting. I don't. Um, I don't. Yeah, I did all. Year zero. I, I, well, what you could play me, I could play you. That would be. No, that wouldn't work. No. Um, no. Oh well, that didn't work out very well. So, how have you been in this science fictional life? Um, I'm getting busy. I'm, I'm enjoying. Uh, it's October. This is something we have to say. I have to say in defense of Chicago. We've had the two weeks of the most perfect weather I've ever had in this city. It's been warm in the daytime. It's not windy. It's not raining. It's not sleeting at night. It's the middle of October. The weather is absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And I just thought I'd boast about that because most people <laughs> live in urban areas. And I know you live in an urban area where the weather never basically changes except it gets hot and not hot or not as hot. Um, but people who live in cities like Chicago and Montreal and London and New York have this odd way of talking about themselves that if you say, if somebody from outside of Chicago says, oh, your weather must be terrible there, I feel sorry for you in the winters, then we immediately get defensive. (laughs) And we start saying, no, it's the middle of October, it's 70 degrees, it's sunny out, it's wonderful, the weather here is wonderful. If somebody from outside of the city says, your weather isn't so bad there, then we go straight into Jack London, Yukon survival <laughs> mode and start saying, you don't know what it's like. It's, that last winter was just miserable. <laughs> but that must mean, so though. I just thought I'd say that the weather's nice. Defense- mm-hmm. Well, hang on. If the weather's nice, that means of course, nice it's, that's not actually reading season. Because to me, when it gets dark and cold outside, that's reading season, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, what, I, I literally feel this pressure when I'm uh, what, uh, 12 days away from another deadline, um, that I really wanted it to be miserable because you want to go out for long walks, you want to go to the beach, you want to spend time outside. For reading, for people who need to do reading, you look forward to miserable weather. You do. Um, I was on a research leave from my university about, oh, three years ago at this point, and it was during the winter. I took off the spring semester, which runs January through May, basically. Yeah. And I wrote... I wrote the book Evaporating Genres during that time because it was a horrible winter. It was terrible. Yeah. And I just stayed inside and wrote and wrote and wrote. And it was, it was wonderful. <laughs> I can completely, completely identify with that. Uh, I've always found that it's easier to, re- well, more inviting to stay inside and read when it's cold and dark outside. Even when I was growing up, I did a lot of my reading at night. I mean, and, and quite mm-hmm. late at night, starting at like 10, 30 or 11 o'clock at night until 2 or 3 in the morning. Because that's what, you know, there's nothing else to do. This is what you, if you could focus in on it. And it's a reading time. I mean, it's a reading time for me. We're coming, obviously, we're, we're well into uh, spring now, in theory, I guess, here. And so it's beginning to warm up a bit, mm. even though we get an odd bit of rain every now and again. Uh, though, of course, having just moved out of winter into spring, I'm going to move into fall in about two weeks, which will make life interesting. Um, I'm also in the process of turning a list of about 60 or 70 short stories into a final list of about 30 and then wrapping a cover around them and calling them the best of the year. So that's preoccupying my attention. I have to tell you, I read a great story yesterday. One of the things, I mean, whether yeah. Steam... Well, yeah. really, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what you and, uh, and, and, and your advisors come up with this time. But it, it just occurred to me while you were mentioning that, and we've been talking about weather that uh i mean you obviously are trying to come out with and you do come out with the year's best anthology shortly after the first of the year yep. which is a very challenging kind of deadline since historically uh over the last 20 years or so 
we would look for the previous year's best anthologies around what? May, June, July, sometimes even August. Mid-year, mid-year, June, July. Mid-year, sometimes as late as September. Yep. Um, And that's, uh, it's heroic of you to try to get them out earlier. I realize that people uh, not involved with the industry and not knowing uh, production times and deadlines and that sort of thing are realizing, well, by December 31st, you will have read all the stories, so why can't we have the book out on January 15th? That yes, there, I mean, well, there's a natural life cycle to, to these things, as you know. I mean, I don't know if we've discussed it before, but really, wow, uh, I'm f- working on. Well, I'll give you an example. On my original anthology, under my hat, I handed the book in three or four months ago, I guess, three months ago, and um, it won't come out till next October, and it's just into copy edits now. And I reckon the advanced review copies will come out in about April, I guess, March, April. Yeah. With uh, the, the book hitting the shelves in October, the year's best, this year's best series for for Nightshade has always run on a much much tighter schedule than that, and sometimes on a much 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 tighter schedule. Uh, but these days, sometime between, well, sometime during November is when I typically deliver. I mean, I've delivered as early as mid-November and as late as early December, I think. Uh, and that's to give, you know, and that gives them almost no time to produce arcs, get copy edits done, or actually get the book out for its March publication date, because that's it. It's got to be in store in March, so it really is up against it. And the fact that I'm taking three weeks out of this process right now is actually really shocking timing. It would have, you know, in terms of work, it would have made more sense to take my family to Reno and then on to New York rather than go to World Fantasy, right. just for that reason, because to take three weeks is just very hard but nonetheless it is what i am doing and if part of your question is first of all have these circumstances changes changed and is it harder now to do a, a year's best this way actually yes it is the electronic publishing world in which we live has changed deadlines and preparation times and i've noticed a definite trend amongst publishers short fiction publishers to publish to identify, edit, and publish short fiction on a shorter turnaround. And so when you go to them maybe in September and say, can I have the end of the year fiction, they're going, we may not have it until late November. In fact, we may, have, we, we may not have it until two weeks before we publish it. And that means that there's a whole array of stuff that you just simply can't include. And in a perfect world, which I don't live in, I wouldn't be turning in the best of the year until the 1st of January. That would be a much right. happier kind of life cycle for things. But hey, that's that's just the way it goes. And there's no point bemoaning it. The, the series is a successful one, as I've said to you privately. I don't think I've ever said on uh, the, the podcast, because I try to avoid talking about my own books too much. But uh, Best Science Fiction Fantasy of the Year, Volume 5, last year's book, is the best-selling in the series. Um, which is a very encouraging and positive thing to have happen. Well, it, it is, and I think some of this has to do with with any year's best series. Uh, it, it, you need to develop uh, a readership that recognizes your editorial skills or the editorial skills of anybody doing this. And one of the reasons Gardner Dozois has been so successful, he's a terrific editor, and he edited the Asimovs, but he also has a brand name now. This is a reliable name. Ellen Datlow is a reliable mm-hmm. name. You have to become a reliable name as an editor. There have been year's best series. There have been original anthology series. Um, that dried up after a year or two uh, simply because they didn't establish that personality. And I think the personality of the editor is a factor in these things. Oh, sure. Or at least, at least what readers believe to be the trustworthiness of the editor. Well, I think so. I, I think that the most you can hope for with this is that you'll read around, if you're interested but not interested enough to read all of the short fiction yourself, uh, the best you can do is to read one or two of these years best, get a feel for the taste of the editor, and go wow. with that editor. And then sort of, then you will probably get a rewarding book. I do believe that when Terry Carr and Donald Walheim edited the year's bests, they actually could read everything that was published, and then they could you know, make a decision and filter it down to the book that they were going to publish. They had less to choose from. Life was simpler. The sources were more clearly identified. I think anybody who says that they read everything now is frankly lying. I think anybody who says that they look at everything now is frankly lying. I was looking at the <laughs> Lying's a bad word. Does not think it through clearly is a better way to put it, but yeah. 
Oh no, I was looking at the locust list of books received uh, up to date. And it was something, it was a slight, something like over two thousand now, I think already. Um, and there are people we were we were talking earlier uh, about when we were mentioning books that might be candidates for the ego. We were mentioning books that we like. We're both talking about how little we read compared to what's out there in the field. Mm. And I think that's true of everybody. I mean, I was talking to somebody the other night about um, the about uh, paranormal romance and that sort of thing, which I read almost none of. Yeah. But by and large, yeah. yeah, nobody tries to read anything. And if somebody actually does read everything, every story, now you're only dealing with short stories and novellas. If you try, somebody's trying to read short stories and novellas and novels in all the multiple sort of micro genres that make up our field now, I don't think I'd want to ever talk to that person. <laughs> I mean, I'd well, be scared of that person. For a start, you wouldn't be able to talk to them because all they would be doing would be reading. Nothing well, else exactly physically. Right, exactly. Uh, but I mean, stuff shows up everywhere. I mean, in the last couple of days, I read three stories that were original to an Amorian McHugh collection. Uh, so I don't know if they were widely seen outside the uh, around the place. They may have been, but it's not out yet. I I, I found out I was unaware that there's a anthology of science fiction and fantasy stories inspired by a Chris Van Alsberg book. The Chronicles of Harris Burdick or something like that, I think it's called, mm -hmm. where they've taken the images from this picture book and given them to a whole bunch of writers like Cory Doctorow and Stephen King and had them write stories to go with them. Didn't know that existed yesterday. I didn't know that either. It's, uh, it strikes me as an odd thing, like a, like a collection of stories based on Janice Ian songs, I suppose. Um, but still. Um, it's still... Any... Any given anthology, and I've learned this, I don't do as much reading as you do on an annual basis, but you know, reading for the uh, World Fantasy Awards, and now reading for the Shirley Jackson Awards, you realize that even the most unpromising collection could have something in it. Oh, yeah. It's a, it's, a classic, it's a classic thing that Charles would say about stuff. You know, there's a donkey in there somewhere. Yes. And that's true. I mean, it, he would say that, I think, particularly to me, about the Daw anthologies, you know, where they were doing... Uh, one a month of Castle Fantastic Dragon Fantastic 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 right, exactly. it might have been and he'd say somewhere in there there's a great story but I just don't have the energy to go in there looking for it and it's the same I mean it's the same across the whole spectrum of the field and as as downward pressures are put on writers unfortunately to you know to, to accept lower payments for stories, which is a very unfortunate thing, mm -hmm. then those stories become more accessible to, a, to to both smaller publishers and to be used for uh, promotional purposes. And so they show up in odder and harder to find locations. Not that they're not good locations or the stories aren't fantastic, but they're just hard to find and be aware of. I was surprised uh, Technology Review, which comes out from MIT, has mm -hmm. done an all science fiction anthology issue thing. With stories by Cory Doctorow and Elizabeth Baer and Joe Haldeman and people like that, I didn't know about that until the other about, about a week ago, two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and every one of these is another couple of dozen stories. And then the the, you know, the books are coming out and begin to look more and more the same. You know, something like Ellen Dantler does Supernatural Noir, which is what Noir and well, the Supernatural, I guess. Then. Yeah. Dozois and Martin do Down These um, Strange Streets, which sounds like it's almost exactly the same book. Uh, mm. and, and then you've got, you know, uh, I think Ellen Datlow had certainly two vampire books out this year, you know, all of which have you know, a selection of interesting stories. I mean, allegedly, I mean, I've read the story and I don't think it actually is, it's just my own definition. There's a, a good, a really a very good uh, John Crowley story came out this year, which is in... Naked City, which is Ellen Datlow's urban fantasy anthology. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not really sure how it's urban fantasy, Gary, but it's very good. Um, that kind of happens uh, more. It's a question I've had, uh, I would have for you and I've had for Ellen. I've talked to uh, both of you about this at one point. Now, if you get a story from somebody the caliber of John yeah. Crowley, oh, yeah. which is really, really good. Um, this issue came up, actually it came up, I know, when Peter Straub was editing that famous issue of Conjunctions and Crowley's mm. cinema story, yes. The Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines, a gorgeous story. It's not fantasy. I mean, I remember I remember talking to John about it, saying, well, you can make it into fantasy if you look at it from a certain angle, um, but no, it's not a fantasy story. And he apologized. And, of course, Peter was looking at it and saying, this is a gorgeous story. It's, 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 it's going in the book. Uh, it's, yeah. we'll figure out a way to, we'll, we'll worry about, you know, definitions later. And I, 
I can't imagine turning down a story like that because it doesn't meet some narrow definition. And I think when you come up with a theme anthology, it's one of the things I was going to ask you about also. Uh, how rigid are you about that theme? Um, I mean, I can understand when you're doing a Mars anthology that Mars has to be there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, when you do something like engineering infinity, um, that's a little bit vaguer. It seems to well, me I mean, some, some of them are some of them are constructed to be deliberately vague. You know, for example, okay, uh, look at Life on Mars. Yes, the story has to, it has to be a Mars story. It has to be young adult. It has to be science fiction. Still a reasonable right. spectrum of stuff, but nonetheless, that was that the, um, the the remit for that book. For a mm -hmm. book like Engineering Infinity, it was deliberately picked just to be a hard SF anthology. Yeah, and even then, I was a little bit relaxed about the boundaries as to what hard SF was. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a book for Solaris at the moment called Edge of Infinity, which is sort of a follow-up to Engineering Infinity, obviously from the title. And Edge of Infinity is a it's a future science fiction uh, anthology set in the solar system. So it's like it's got to be space-based science fiction set in the solar system. As long as it's that, they can do anything they want. Mm -hmm. uh, and obviously Eclipse was deliberately for, you know, for its lifetime, was deliberately a open kind of thing it was supposed to be as, as free and clear as it possibly could be uh well that's why i like i've always liked anthologies like that. that's why i like the orbit series it's why i like the universe series all the sort of you know original story anthologies because there are going to be people uh and then there are probably more people like this than ever but let's let's talk about people we've mentioned before people like Ari lafferty or people like uh, Gene Wolfe, in the early part of his career, when he was writing these wonderful stories that uh, originally became the fifth head of Cerberus, uh, they, most of these stories didn't necessarily fit into any pattern of any particular market. Um, but having an original anthology series gave a voice to a lot of people that might not otherwise have had voices. There were sure. One of my favorite writers who is now forgotten, and I would like to see him resurrected uh, from, from that period of sort of weird experimental science fiction, was David R. Bunch. Oh yeah, modern stories. I thought were just terrific. Yes, the language is, and people are people are still picking up on that. So the guy was, I think, it was a poet actually before mm, he became mm. a story writer. You um, do get examples and, like that. Yeah, uh, I think there are a number of examples like that. Let's see. Um, well, but it's not only people. Well, I'm not only think people like Lafferty who write, or or, or uh, maybe the best example of all would have been Avram Davidson. Uh -huh. um, People whose stories don't fit into what people conceive to be existing markets, but once you read them, you realize, well, there ought to be a market for this, and I'd like to read more stories like this. Yes, very much. Very and much. my sense is that whereas at the time, um, Davidson and Lafferty and maybe Bunch to some extent were just probably people who couldn't write any other stories and they wanted to find markets and they found sympathetic editors. My sense is that you have a lot of writers today who are not – not necessarily thinking in terms of boundaries. Um, sure. They'll the, the, the write stories, uh, and, and Rachel Swirsky is an example of this for, for among younger writers. Uh, some of them might be science fiction. Some of them look like fairy tales. Some of them look like fairy tales which turn into science fiction. Um, and today, I think there's a much more open market for that sort of thing, and I think writers feel a lot more free to do that sort of thing. But nevertheless, the best place to do that sort of thing is it in an anthology or possibly a magazine that has no remit at all? Um, and yes and no. Uh, well, go ahead. I'll tell you why yes and no. I mean, I think it's 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 editorially nice to have a very open, loose remit. I think uh -huh. it's a it, nice piece of it's, it's a nice thing to have the freedom from a writer's perspective to sit your work in an environment where it can be as free as it wants to be. Mm -hmm. I do think that you need to have some way of shaping that market itself uh, to succeed and flourish in uh, out in the in the field at large and to, to, to find readers, because after all, there's no point in having you know to be publishing fiction that's not being read. Well, yeah. And I think that you know, one of the challenges that I've seen in projects like, say, Eclipse is at times finding that market, you know, because, I mean, and if you look, I mean, there aren't very many books like that around at all in, anymore. And the reason is because you can't profile them in such a way that they find a readership. One of the great criticisms that 
has been le- has been directed at Gordon Van Gelder's FNSF is that it's too monotone. I think in is that it has too much of exactly the same kind of thing year after year. And I think there's a real positive and a negative. I mean, it's the same thing that's said of analog. You know, the people who don't like analog say it's boring old engineer fiction. They don't go and read it necessarily to determine if it's uh, boring old engineering fiction, but that's what they believe it to be. Uh, and possibly one of the great strengths of uh, Stan Schmidt's editorship of that magazine is that whatever else you can say, he's been able to find a consistent voice for it and get that to you know to his readers. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that's actually perhaps something that's a little bit underappreciated. It's not as easy as people might think it is uh, to do that. You know, I wonder if it's safe to say though that there that, that, that to some extent Stan is a classic science fiction editor in the <laughs> sense that he's giving his readers he's editing for content. I think he's editing for the kind of classic science fiction ideas, the puzzle stories, the problems. You're right, the engineering stories, some of which can be brilliant. There's no doubt about that. Mm. But and I, I would argue that probably Gordon is editing, uh, as is the FNSF tradition, uh, for for more traditional literary value, for style, character, for things that uh, you know. FNSF began by back in its early years, it was publishing C.S. Lewis and Borges and people like that. Sometimes the first yeah. American publication. Um, so there's a literary tradition, and I wonder if that's. I, I think the two things can live side by side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But, but by and large, there is this issue which is coming into discussion now again as to whether science fiction ought to be thought of purely as a stylistic and uh, imagistic and um, literary subset of, of, of literature or whether it is something special, whether it ought to do something. You mean whether it has a mission? Whether it has a mission, exactly. Um, I mean, Charles, and, and, and if it does have a mission, what is that mission? Our friend Charles... Uh, believed it was a philosophy, and yeah. and his idea of a philosophy, I think, expanded as he grew older. I think his original idea was his the philosophy was it was a Heinlein philosophy. It was a kind of engineering. Let's think, let's think of big ideas and mm-hmm. find out how that would work. And as he grew older, his philosophy encompassed more and more things, and and he wanted to read fiction that addressed big questions in general. Yeah, uh, I don't know. And the other issue, this, this has come up, there was an article which I've, I, th- I think I sent you a, a link to, that, um, that Neil Stevenson wrote in, what was it, World Policy Reviewers, yeah. yeah. okay, um, uh, mentioning a project which which we'll be talking about more in the future because I'm involved with it a little bit, called the Hieroglyph Project. Yes. Um, which, but, but essentially what his article was, which came out of a think tank he was involved with, with the various other people uh, Freeman Dyson's children, the president of the University of Arizona, very high-powered people, uh, effectively saying that science fiction isn't providing the kind of direct inspiration to scientists and engineers and visionaries that it used to provide. Um, well, is that true? I don't know if it's true. I mean, I, I will say that actually the other thing that it ties directly into is uh, this T, you know, TRSF, which is the technology reviews science fiction issue that's just mm. come out. Uh, you know, the all antho- the, the anthology right. they've awesome. done, which you can get from the t- technology review. Uh, and that has exactly the same remit, getting science fiction writers to talk about uh, big ideas. Mm. Uh, is science fiction failing in this remit? I don't know, because I, I mean, I don't know that it really still is science fiction's remit, if it ever fundamentally was. And what I'm not sure about maybe because I haven't thought it through enough and maybe this is the forum to do it is are we attempting to apply an outdated paradigm to science fiction because isn't the fiction we read a reflection of what we want to be discussing in other words science fiction you see more and more science fiction that reads like fantasy it's a very I found it uh, this year reading a lot of short fiction there's a lot uh-huh. of very, very good science fiction out there that reads, I mean, a, a lot like fantasy. There's a terrific, just a terrifically good Kids Johnson novella that was published in the November Asimovs, The Man Who Bridged the Mist. And it's science fiction, but it reads like fantasy. Mm-hmm. Now, part of that may be that Kids, to my knowledge, if I recall correctly, is not a scientist, but I think it's mostly the fact that readers 
are looking for that sort of an approach in their fiction. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, so, so that suggests to me when those those stories come out when they're well received, as they have been over the last few years, that that's what readers are now valuing in science fiction, and they tend to devalue exactly this kind of an approach. And there's a little part, when I first heard about it, on first oh. first from Neil Stevenson, then from the other NASA project with NASA and Tor, Yeah. what I really thought was, it sounds exactly to me like people saying, why don't they write young adult science fiction the way Heinlein used to write juveniles? And the reason they don't write juveniles the way Heinlein used to write them is because it's not 1953. Well, I, okay. Let me let me argue a little bit uh, in the other direction, and let me. And, and my my test case is Shipbreaker. Okay. Paolo Chigalupi. It seems to me that he has a very distinct mission. He's very passionate about his mission. He has written about it journalistically as well as in his fiction, and he. I, I don't know that he's proposing solutions in the way that maybe the Hieroglyph Project or uh, or or, or, or um, aspirations the way the Hieroglyph Project may want to, but he certainly wants people to think about these issues, and he's making that very clear. At points, there are points in Shipbreaker, and I've not read the second novel yet. Um, uh, I guess I guess it's not even... Has it been delivered? I believe it has been. I, I, I think it's been delivered. But that, I believe... That's... At any rate, it's not on the schedule. There were parts of, of, of Shipbreaker that become a bit didactic. Mm-hmm. There are parts when he talks about, well, those people thought they could just, you know, use fossil fuels forever. That point comes up again and again in uh, his earlier stories in the, um, the the Calorie Man and so forth and so on. And there are some aspirational ideas in that, yeah. but they're also desperate aspirational ideas. Like <laughs> maybe we maybe we better start thinking about spring-loaded technology because we may need it. <laughs> well, yes. And there's always been writers who have specific missions of their own. And mm-hmm. I think that that's, I mean, you can see it in Stan Robinson's fiction, you know, say off the top of my head. You know, there's a very strong environmentalist kind of thing, for example, yes. through his fiction. Uh, you get that. I think that's a perfectly reasonable, legitimate thing. I don't know that it speaks in completely to the issue of whether science fiction itself should have a driving mission, and the driving mission should be, in effect, to to stoke the engine with coal at the front of the sort of the train for the train of science to sort of keep trundling along, you know, so like we need to give our scientists imagination to to, to work off. Now, sure, we can look at examples where we think that's happened. And to me, in the last 25 years or 30 years, the obvious one has to be Bill Gibson and the Internet. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, or even you know, Neil Stevenson and the uh, and the iPad, because surely that's where that comes from to some degree. But is it the mission of science fiction? I don't know. Is it the mission of science fiction today? I don't know. And perhaps most importantly, and this is maybe the balance they're really looking to address, is it the mission of all science fiction? It's when they speak about it. When you become evangelical on a subject, it begins to sound as though Everything must be that way. So you look at it and you ask yourself, is the, you know, the, what we're looking to have is that everybody should write science fiction filled with big ideas that will inspire scientists? No, yeah, I, I don't it, think that's it, true. It, but I think that's, I, I that's think the that's, rhetoric of it. I don't think that's even the rhetoric of what, uh, of what Neil is talking about. And I, I did talk to him on the phone about this at some point. He's, he's well aware of the fact that his own science fiction has... Oh, he, I, I don't think he'd be angry at my saying that he said to me that he's exhibit one. I mean, he's he's one of the writers who shifted, who radically shifted the attention of science fiction to information technology, to the kinds of things that are basically happening and extrapolated into the future. Yeah. Uh, and not dealing with the kind of big engineering projects, the kind of thing he talks about in this article in, uh, in, in this journal, that, uh, you know, we're using the deep water horizon thing. You know, we're using 50-year-old models for building nuclear reactors sure. and, uh, and and uh, uh, offshore drilling rigs and even uh, uh, even, even uh, passenger jets and this sort of thing. And the, uh, the, those big ideas seem to have been uh, – science fiction's attentions seems to have shifted away from that. Now, the reason I don't think he thinks of all – I don't think he would ever argue that all science fiction should do this. But when you mention science fiction shifting paradigms, 
I think it does that periodically. I mean, he did say something about science fiction should stop messing around with, shouldn't spend so much time playing around with steampunk, which is a lot of fun imaginatively, but doesn't lead anywhere um, in terms of you know policy or invention or, or design or whatever it is. I would like to think of, I've always thought of the history of science fiction not necessarily as shifting paradigms. It may shift fashions, but it's accreted paradigms. Uh, and and sure. you, you yourself know this. I mean, space opera was a paradigm, and it sure. seemed to go away for a while, yes. but it didn't really go away. No, no, no. Uh, well, nothing goes away. I, I will say as well, just to interject, a man who writes a 430,000-word novel that's basically a thriller about gold farming really, really, really has to be careful. I know he's saying he's, he's exhibit A and everything else, <laughs> but he really is. His biggest engineering project in his fiction is his own fiction. You know, so I'm not really sure. Uh, and, and yes, do, do things build off paradigms? Yes. Do things, do, does anything go away? No. Are people still out there writing, writing 1950s style science fiction? Yes. Uh, at one point I came across through Tartarus Press. When I read for the, the World Fantasy Awards back in 2001, I read a bunch of Tartarus Press books. Now, Tartarus Press books are nice. They're beautifully produced. They come out in small editions, yeah? Maybe 500 copies, 300 copies, yeah. that kind of thing. There's one on the World Fantasy Ballot this year by uh, Angela Slatter, uh, the title of which escapes me right this instance. But anyway, what I found when I read Tartarus Press books were what I called the ghost story underground. There was a batch of writers out there writing 19th century style science, uh, ghost stories. And for a small audience, they were the bee's knees. They're exactly what they wanted. And yeah. nice balance. Nothing goes away. Uh, is 2010 space opera like 1950 space opera? Not the newer stuff, but science fiction isn't big enough to fit into your ice cream container anymore. It's this great big sprawling thing. And as has always been the case as well, what I mean by science fiction and you mean by science fiction and Ursula Le Guin means by science fiction and Margaret Atwood means by science fiction and Ursula Le Guin means, oh, sorry, oh, sorry, Alyssa Krasenstein means by science fiction and Tansy Roberts means by it and Neil Stevenson and Greg Bear and anybody else, they're all different. They're all different and that's that's part of the strength of the field. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't argue that at all. <clears throat> but, but I think there's a more complicated issue involved which I haven't even brought up. There's a little group of people that's been discussing the hieroglyph thing uh, before this website mm -hmm. rolls out, eventually this anthology. One of the things uh, that I would argue, there, there are two different things, okay, uh, which I was thinking while you were talking. These are going to sound like completely unrelated topics, because they are. One is, look at somebody like Gene Wolfe. You mentioned yep. science fiction reads like fantasy. Yep. But in order to understand a Gene Wolfe novel, you have to be able to think in certain very attentive, very creative ways. In other words, the, the mental exercise you go through of realizing you have to pay attention to detail, you have to understand that everything has meaning and the things that you might not have thought were important are important. That's a kind of mind training that does apply to, I think, scientists and engineers as well. In other words, he's not necessarily talking about new inventions, but he's talking about a way of thinking that may spur creativity in people who, uh, who, who figure out his fiction. Sure. And I think that's a valuable thing in science fiction. I think it's a characteristic of some science fiction. Whether it's an underpinning of it, I'm not I'm not as sure. Uh, what I, I, it's a, I mean, what I've found as I go on, I don't know if it's true for you. Certainly, it didn't seem to be true for Charles. Uh, the, the more I read and the longer I'm in the field and the more people I talk to, the less sure I am of anything. Uh, uh, I think that's... Well, yeah, Charles was pretty sure of everything, you're right. <laughs> well, he, basically, I think, well, he signed on for a mission in 1953 that he was still on in 2008. And there's a certain, there's something admirable about that. Uh, I was never as sure about the, you know, the one true mission of science fiction as he was. And the more I, I you know, when I talk to the people who I talk to today more and more, what I accept is that everybody's view of it, of it is different. And this is where I mean when I come when I think about things you know the kind of things like when I say things like there's a this this book like the Dervish House by Ian McDonald, it's it's the kind of book the field needs. I guess mm -hmm. it's the kind of book that the field that I want to read needs. Uh, compare that with say a Cryer Burn by Lois Bujold, which is a very mm -hmm. you know, perfectly entertaining very entertaining novel. I don't want to disparage it in any way. Read it, enjoyed it, but it's a very different sort of a beast. You know, and I, I, what I'm possibly more aware of, and that makes me 
cagier about answering these questions is I'm just m more aware of the push to make science fiction generally more inclusive. And the more you make prescriptive statements about it, whether it is that it should be feeding science more or not, uh -huh. the more I'm aware that it becomes exclusive rather than inclusive, I think. Yeah. I think if you make summative statements that science fiction ought to do this or ought to do that, you run into that danger because basically it's the same issue. Uh, and this is where I don't think you can distinguish science fiction from any other kind of literature. You can't, I mean, uh, I, I go back to Oscar Wilde's famous statement, all art is quite useless. <laughs> um, to some extent, you know, literature is, uh, is an art form. It has to do with aesthetics and science fiction has looked more and more and more like that. The question of whether literature in general can be useful is one that goes on outside science fiction left and right. It went oh, sure. along the Victorians, you know, and uh, did, did, did Dickens's hard times really help reform the child labor system or the educational system? Uh, we don't know that, but he certainly wanted to do that. Did Great Expectations, did, did Bleak House change the court system? Well, not really. Um, so has literature ever really changed the world? That's a much broader uh, issue that that really is implied by this issue, I think. Um, but still, I, I want, it, 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 the other thing, which was a wildly irrelevant thing, somebody sent me a link uh, <clears throat> the last couple of days, and I'm sure this link is floating around uh, on, uh, on the web, to a, to a Knight Ritter newspaper's um, video from 1994 talking about the electronic newspaper of the future. Oh, yeah. And it shows, it shows an iPad. <laughs> I mean, it looks exactly like an iPad. It's called e-newspaper or something. The only difference is that in order to click on a link or in order to animate a video or something like that, uh, this woman in the film is using a stylus instead of her finger. Yeah. Outside of that, this is Knight Ritter Newspapers inventing the iPad in 1994 at this research lab mm -hmm. and not doing anything with it. And I thought, okay, that's, that's your classic 1940s model of what science fiction should have been doing, and it's a research lab at a newspaper uh, conglomerate uh, that's coming up with this idea, which apparently disappeared entirely. And when you go back and look at other things like this, there, there are some, there's another video from the early 60s from Bell Telephone uh, about the video phone. And uh, video phones apparently were developed in, in the 60s and didn't go anywhere. Mm -hmm. All these kinds of interesting, and, and this, our friend Rose Fox, for example, did this book from, uh, I think, mechanic, a popular mechanics magazine in the 30s and 40s, where you have all these science fictional this is the world of tomorrow kind of thing. This is when we're going to have helicopters in our garage and that sort of thing. I think that sort of thing <clears throat> may have been abandoned by science fiction largely and given over to uh, research and development teams at corporations, to Popular Mechanics magazine, to Parade magazine. I was looking at some magazines in the early 1950s. Collier's ran a, a number of multiple issues about going to the moon and Mars and establishing sure. a station. <clears throat> and they were really doing that uh, uh, in, in a way that brought it to a much broader audience than, than, than science fiction was doing at the time. And they were very much together with, I mean, they were publishing science fiction stories by Heinlein and Bradbury and so forth and lots of Jack Finney stories. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm wondering if that, that, matter, that matter of thinking is still out there. I think it just may not be located centrally in science fiction anymore. Maybe. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's possible. Um, I, I wonder if, as well, to some degree, I mean, what happened is that science fiction became exhausted with it all, with the whole idea of keeping up with everything in such a way that it could make those kind of, that it could lead in that sort of a way. I don't know. Yeah, I think, well, I think the other thing is that I think science fiction writers, as they become, to be honest, better writers, uh, have begun to think less and less that you can write a good story just around a cool idea. Um, in other words, I think we've, we've, become to, we've come to demand of science fiction writers, and I would say probably especially of short fiction writers, that they are, first of all, excellent writers. They write well-shaped stories. They have believable characters. They can write decent prose and would like to have a really cool idea on top of that, but the idea won't carry the story anymore. You can't, you can't excite people with moving railways anymore. A good example is this. Uh, Arthur Clarke's The Fountains of Paradise. That was yep. the first big space elevator sure, novel. Sure. And the space elevator, it, 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 it was a lot of fun to read, but the space elevator was what sold the novel. Now, if you want to put a space elevator in a novel, and there's one in, uh, in the Joan Slanzuski novel we've mentioned earlier, sure, sure. it has to be part of the furniture. 
Okay, it's, it's not an exciting idea anymore. Yeah, but okay. <clears throat> is is that because of a change in how writers approach stories, or is it also at least at least also uh, a product of how science itself has changed? The kind of science that we talk that we hear it's talked about generally is fuzzier. You know, I mean, it was easier when you were talking about engineering solutions. The iPad is an engineering solution. But when you're not talking about engineering so solutions, when you're talking about quantum physics or quantum mechanics, when you're talking about the more abstruse kinds of theories that are around these days, which I'm not au fait with, so I might be completely wrong, I, I just wonder if it, if it becomes uh. too difficult. And also that people just... It's harder to understand. It's harder to build a any kind of story around. You know, I, I, that's my worry. Uh, I think, yeah, I, yeah, it's true about science. But again, a large part of what uh, Neil was proposing in this essay, and a large part of what I'm talking about with Clark, is more engineering than science. In other words, the space elevator is the mechanics of the space elevator were pretty much worked out in the Fountains of Paradise. Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a, a technology engineering problem, not a scientific. I think you're absolutely right that the science that's going on today. Here's another good example. Uh, last week we were hearing about uh, CERN sending a bag full of neutrinos to Italy uh, at somewhat, some tiny fraction, apparently faster than the speed of light. Yeah. And and it got a lot of headlines. Most of most of the stuff I read uh, from scientists are saying, okay, let's see this replicated before we do anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> But I was thinking in the 1950s or 1960s, somebody would have said, cool, okay, science fiction writers go to it. FTL is now possible. Now I think most science fiction writers who are interested in hard science fiction know enough about high energy physics to know that that's not necessarily implying anything about FTL travel. Also, as we've discovered in many cases with these things, even if it shows you that it's possible to boost a particle, uh, a packet of particles faster than the speed of light, it doesn't mean that you can move a useful portion, a, a quantity of particles exactly. faster than the speed of light, or through time. I, I think I heard something where someone said they thought they might have worked at some kind of time travel. It just was completely useless to anybody ever, ever. Or right. they'd worked out some way to materialize and dematerialize objects, but the same thing held true. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there is that. There is that knowledge which undercuts it all and makes it, you know, that said, I mean, I'd like to see, I'd like, I'd like to see what kind of solution they come up with. I I'd like to see this anthology, allowing that no anthology ever changed the world. I would like to see the anthology they put together anyway. I'd like to see Neil Stevenson's solution to big engineering questions if he's going to address it. Admittedly, I mean, he's good friends with someone like, say, Greg Bear. Greg Bear's yeah. got an awful lot of experience of at uh, producing just this very kind of fiction. So that that you know, it'll be interesting to see whether he refocuses on that or whether it manages just to seem old-fashioned. Because that, that's the other thing. Let's say that you do refocus everybody on, or or at least a portion of people for a portion of the time to produce a body of work that does exactly this, that that reignites this particular submission of science fiction. Well, I mean, one of the things that might do this, and I think one of the things that that gave writers like Edmund Hamilton of the of, of the pulp era an advantage is that. And by and large, most of them were writing science fiction out of popular science, out of a yeah. popular understanding. And, and and therefore, they didn't worry about the details. Yeah. Uh, Jack London wrote a great invisibility story, The Shadow and the Flash, mm -hmm. in which he waved his hands and had two different forms of invisibility, one of which there are flashes and you can kind of see where the person's been, and the other which the person has an invisibility cloak that still casts a shadow. And it was kind of cool. He thought through for about three three or four seconds, how you could be invisible, <laughs> yep. and then wrote a story about it. You can't get away with that anymore. You're going to have readers looking over your shoulders. But here's one of the things I've noticed, and I was, like I say, this whether this project gets off the ground or results in a world-changing anthology or not, I think the issues it raises are good issues for discussing. Sure. And one of the things that's become a classic convention in science fiction uh, is the alien object, the big dumb object. And again, yep. I can go back to Clark, the, the Rama, the rendezvous with Rama. And now you have almost a standard feature of both uh, uh, literary science fiction and even science fiction movies. Somebody finds an alien artifact. We find a mm -hmm. monolith on the moon. Well, what's an alien artifact but a big piece of engineering that you don't have to worry about the details on? In other words, <laughs> it's magic disguised as engineering. Well, we don't know what that thing is, but it's a machine and somebody built it and it therefore is science fiction. Um, 
And think of how many of those things there are. Think of how many alien artifacts have become crucial to so much, uh, even uh, space opera or hard SF in the sure, last sure, three or four sure. years. No, absolutely. I mean, and even with whatever changes are happening in those areas, yes, those sort of constructions do remain a constant. I think possibly because, exactly as you're saying, because they don't require much in the way of science fictional thought to put put a MacGuffin in the corner and call it alien. You know, you're, co- you're, you're, you're cloaking it in a black box. It, it, exactly, and it's uh, it, the most quoted quotation of of Clark's is that you know yeah. sufficient uh, the technology is sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, which I always thought was a wisecrack, and I thought no, he created with that statement with that concept he created this whole sub theme of what I think Ross Caveney first called big dumb objects, mm-hmm. the giant alien uh, construct where we say well you know it's it's a machine but we don't know how it works so you've you've just completely um, divorced yourself from any responsibility for explaining how it got there or yes. how it got to be built. And I think that is one of the issues that ironically may ally the hieroglyph business with something like mundane SF. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if somebody were to pass a rule uh, for an anthology, let's say, and I don't know if anybody's going to do this and I don't know if the hieroglyph anthology is going to have saying a rule. You can't have a machine unless you have some idea how it gets built. <laughs> You can't put in the machine that just does stuff because some alien built it. You have to figure out something about how it works. Here's a question for you. What is the corollary assumption for fantasy? Because the mundane SF explanation or uh, assumption mm-hmm. boxes science fiction into a particular place and makes it function in, a, in a, a set of ways. Is there a corollary assumption for fantasy? Like mundane SF? Yeah. yeah. What what is the corollary? I mean, I mean, the, the, uh, you know, you, you sit there and you go, for mundane SF, it's basically it has to be able to happen in the real world. Uh, yeah. Anything anything else is fantasy. But you, what you're also doing is, if you like, slightly what you're doing is you're tying one hand behind your back to see just how well you can do what you do. Is is, yeah. there, is there something that works like that for fantasy? I don't know that there is, but I mean, my first reaction is that fantasy, by definition, involves things that can't happen in the real well, yeah, world. So yeah, of course. Yeah. And I, 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 the closest I could think of is that there is uh, a certain kind of fantasy, and uh, I guess we could uh, quote our friend Farrah Mendelssohn when in a rhetoric of fantasy calls intrusive fantasy. If you confine your point of view and your characters to the recognizable realistic world, and something mysterious happens, mm-hmm. uh, then you're then you're restraining yourself from going into the other world. In other words, the the, the portal, the, the idea that you can actually, uh, you know, go into the land in Stephen Donaldson, or you can go into Middle Earth. Well, actually, Middle Earth doesn't have anybody from from here coming into it. But but maybe maybe yeah. maybe writing a fantasy that restrains itself from moving into a full fledged other world is vaguely related to that. Yes, yes, I think it yeah. might be. Uh, I think that certainly. When you get to that edge between fantasy and horror fiction and you get to some of these uh, ambivalent stories and some of the people we've talked about on the podcast have written these stories. I mean, Peter Straub has written them. Caitlin yep. Kernan has written them where something appears to be supernatural that's happening. Yes. Uh, but you're not sure because of the characters and the point of view and the sure. narration and the distance in there. You're not sure what's happening. Then uh, there are a lot of stories like that. The paradigm for prob- probably is the turn of the screw. Uh, where you're at, at the end saying, well, if you really, really want this to be a fantasy story, sure. There's everything in it can be explained by fantasy. And if you don't want it to be a fantasy story, you don't need the fantastic to explain everything in it. Yeah. No, okay. That's fair enough. Yep. I've got nothing to add to that. That sounds reasonable. Oh, good. All right. Uh, there's a thing that fascinated me years ago. I, I wrote an article about this, which has disappeared utterly. Uh, there was a popular subgenre back in the 60s and 70s of psychological, psychotic narratives, first-person uh, sort of uh, almost always autobiographical accounts of mental breakdowns. The most popular one was uh, Hannah Green's uh, um, I Never Promised You a Rose Garden. And the fantasy sequences in that are absolutely perfectly consistent second-world fantasies. Everything works in mm-hmm. them, the levels of power in them, the, the gods and so forth work, because uh, apparently people who are into certain... Uh, deaths of schizophrenia create um, oh. remarkably consistent internal worlds that if you presented those worlds as fantasy worlds, you'd think it's, it's cool fantasy. Uh, the problem is that the particular narrator believes in those worlds and doesn't live in them, and, <laughs> and, and therefore they become psychotic manifestations. 
Uh, I asked people what we should talk about in the podcast, Gary. And what did we come up with? Other things, none of which we've talked about. Um, Some of which we're not going to talk about, I have to admit. Uh, I don't think we're going to talk about books you're looking forward to because we do all the time. And you actually have – we we, we both, in fact, have books we're looking forward to on our Kindle right now. You're already reading one of them and I haven't started yet, which which are uh, Blue Remembered Earth by Al Reynolds and In the Belly of the Whale by – uh, the Mouth of the Wild. In the Mouth of the Wild. By Paul. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah. My, my fault. Um, and um, and we've got Stan Robinson's novel coming up uh, in the next spring, I guess. Yes, it is. We, I mean, we've read it, though. So. Yeah. And now we're, we're risking doing that thing where we go back and make lists of stuff, and then we omit things, and eh, let's not make lists. Not going to talk about Barton, Barnes Noble locking out DC Comics' Charles Tan, because I don't really know much about it. I don't um, so I won't do that. We were asked by Brian Thomas Schmidt about, have you discussed the changing space of space opera much already? Now, just as a preface, I will notice that we talked about it on the first pot episode of the podcast. Mm-hmm. So we have talked about it in the past and probably have touched, you know, touched the base with it a few times over the past year and a half. Uh, not the least, And it's a subject we've talked about before. And we took part in the issue on, of Locus on the new space opera that was done back in the late 90s. And I don't know if there well, is, the, is a little bit, I think. Well, uh, the story you were telling me, and I don't know if you want to share it about Sophie's doll. <laughs> what, what, oh, well, sure. But, one of the, okay, but, 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 just, but just mention that briefly, because I think it has something to do with whether the new space opera that you anthologized is still new, or whether well, there's a new sure. space opera. Well, when, when Sophie was, I guess, two, she, mm-hmm. or even maybe one and a half, she got this little soft toy that her sister had owned, a little pink Terry Towling doll that she called dubbed Pinky quite quite mm-hmm. intelligently, and about a year and a half later, it had gotten all very ratty and worn, and so we decided to get her a new one to give to her mm-hmm. for Christmas. She was delighted. She promptly dubbed. She, we thought she would do throw away the old one and she'd have the new one, mm-hmm. and it would be Pinky. But no, she simply kept the old one and dubbed the new one New Pinky, and then it was followed by a year later by another one that became New New Pinky. So she had New Pinky, New New Pinky, and ultimately five of them. You got to the point where there was Pinky, New Pinky, New New Pinky, New 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 Pinky, new, and so on up to New 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 Pinky, and I think we've got the New 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 Space Opera. That's exactly uh, what I'm saying. You've got the paradigm right. We're not throwing away the old Taddy Edmund Hamilton Space Opera one. It's still there. You can still write that. The new Space Opera may have done what it needed to do, and uh, and I don't know what the next phase is, but yeah, I mean, I think Space Opera. I, I, I will say this. I will say that what the new space opera did, at least, was give a label to a revival of a kind of writing which never really went away sure. and which is still evolving. Yeah. The one thing I will notice that seems to be a, a common thread between uh, – I've, I've not looked at the Paul McCauley novel yet, but um, the, um, the, the Al Reynolds novel and, and, and the Stan Robinson and, and the earlier Paul McCauley novels, the Quiet War novels, there's a really serious interest in – confining space opera to the solar system these days. Well, and is it at that point then space opera? Because I was going to say, we're, we're no longer in an era, particularly, I think, and I think this is fair, I don't think we're in an era where people are writing galaxy-smashing stories anymore. No. And I don't think the space opera people are writing galaxy-smashing sm- stories even when they write galaxy-scale stories. I think Al Reynolds, who's often been... Uh, touted as a new space opera writer, has pulled his scope in in a number of his books over the last few years and does with this this one again, I think, and changes its whole look into retooling from the present day out, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Paul McCauley, yes, has definitely brought it all back into the solar system. Uh, you see it with uh, James Corey's book, Leviathan's Wake, which came out this year, mm-hmm. which I enjoyed. Uh, and it's that same kind of a thing. So there is there is that kind of connecting it back to the present day more, uh, bring it back inside our solar system. Not so, I don't want to say we're turning away from interstellar travel and that whole kind of thing particularly, but certainly imagining the next two three hundred years more clearly. Uh, I mean, which is exactly what Stan Stan's book is about. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so yeah. Well, that's so there's, so, so there's that. So there's that. That's. The new, new, okay. new, new space opera, or the new, the new space. Maybe it should be like that math, you know, mathematical notation, new to the power of three space opera, or something. Yeah, right. Uh, and I was going to suggest, though, we're we are actually, believe it or not, having tried and failed yesterday, we're beginning to run out of time, that we might have talked mm. about small press, you know, indie press. And it occurs to me, actually, I'm not sure whether there's anything particularly intelligent to say about it. 
in the sense because I'm not sure that the role of small press has changed that much in the last 40 years. Um, it, it's still quite a oh, very. You, you think it has? Oh, Tell me how. Tell me how. I think it has. Yeah. Uh, partly because I was looking back at the early 50s and I was looking at uh, the argument which Robert, Bob Silverberg made this argument in an introduction to one of the Nebula volumes where he said that the true golden age of science fiction was the was not the th or late 30s and early 40s, not the Campbell era, was the 50s when the book market came around. And one of the points he made in that was that prior to Doubleday and Frederick Fell and a sure. couple of other New York publishers, uh, the small press was the only place to publish science fiction novels at all in the late 40s, and practically the only place, well, virtually the only place to publish science fiction short stories. And then as science fiction became a mainstream market uh, segment, um, science fiction, a lot of science fiction that had been the province of the small presses, the Foundation series being one of the prime examples, sure. the, the, the uh, Lindsman stories, Doc Smith stories. Uh, that stuff got published in mainstream one way or the other, you know, in, either in paperback or um, uh, in, in ace doubles, but eventually in hardcover. And and for a good chunk of years there, uh, mainstream publishers were, were interested in that. And then as the market began to shrink and become more competitive, things like story collections became less and less interesting uh, to commercial publishers and more and more moved back to the small presses that 30 years ago had been doing them exclusively anyway. Yeah. Yeah, some small presses have been doing this all along. Arkham House had been there, interestingly enough, from the early '40s, you know, uh, th through th through all of these changes. But I think that the con uh, condensing of the mainstream market opened up a lot of new opportunities for small presses. I think the the disappearance of the midlist uh, op opened up opportunities sure. for small. Uh, I, I think the notion that there are literally, when you look at people like uh, the, the people that, for example, Tachyon is championed, like uh, Peter Beagle or, uh, or, or Tom Dish, uh, those are absolutely incredibly valuable things that small presses, I don't know if they would have been uh, offered these things 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, 50 years ago, they would have been given them, yeah. I, I wonder if small presses, and I've got a great deal of time for small presses because I've both bought an awful lot of their product over the years and have have run one of my own and have worked for them extensively so i've got a great deal of time have they merely become more diverse and have become a repository for the field in this these days of shrinking mass market lists because you know i look at somewhere like say aqueducts right which mm -hmm. is pub you know, publishing gwyneth jones and publishing um nisi shawl and people like that and who do terrific work that's very much a what I would think of as a niche small press who are doing a wonderful job. Then you look at Subterranean Press, who are another fantastic small press of ours, who are much more a collector's market small press. Mm -hmm. And one th one mistake that gets made, which really, really annoys me, is people equate small press with um, luxury edition small press. And it's by no means the same thing. The other thing that equally annoys me are people who disparage the, the special, you know, the luxury small press because they also do a lot of very, very worthwhile, interesting things. I mean, you get these, these sort of, and you also get small press ranges from, and this is a long conversation for another time, uh, yeah. from nano small presses, you know, from, from, you know, book people who publish one or two books ever at all, or who publish mm -hmm. a book a year up to people who produce 30, 40, 50 titles a year, but in small quantities on through publishers like Nightshade or Publishing, who frankly don't meet any definition, reasonable definition of small press anymore, in my opinion. Not anymore. Um, I mean, I think it was the Pushcart Prize people who define a small press as a business with a turnover of less than a million dollars. Not a profit, but a turnover. Mm. And whilst that doesn't rule out many small presses in, in our field or redefine them, it does rule out a couple, and I would suggest probably Nightshade and maybe, I'm guessing, I don't know this, uh, Subterranean would be uh, one of them. I think it could be, and I think that some of the you're, – you're right. Some people complain about uh, smaller specialty presses, and there are some like Gauntlet or Centipede that are enormously expensive, and they're directed at a particular kind of collector. Uh, but there are other small presses that are simply public services. I don't know over the last 20 years what I would have done without Nespa Press. I mean there are mm. a, a library of the short fiction and in many cases the novels of people like William Tin or – or C.M. Cornblith or, uh, or Cordwain or Smith have been kept in print for a long time. And small presses can do that. That's the other thing. And I know some people don't like the term small press, but the smallness is an advantage. 
the smallest is an advantage yes. is that you can make a living running a press with sales figures that would be laughed out of the office of most New York publishers. Oh, sure. I mean, and also not even make a living. I mean, let's set that aside as well. Uh, mm. There are any number of very, very good small presses that don't produce a living for the people who run them and may never produce a living. Well, and they're, st- they're still very valuable presses. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sort of shooting this off the top of my head. I could, I could name publishers. I mean, I dare say, I, I would doubt that Aqueduct actually makes a living for um, Timmy Deschamps. Deschamps and, it, and, and if it does, then I, I'm very, very pleased. Uh, I'm sure, in fact, I know, I know 12th Planet Press who have published some, some fine books don't make a living for, for, for uh, doesn't make a living for Elisa, doesn't make any mu- very much money at all. But nonetheless, but the thing is, able, and that's not, that's but, not but, your mission. I mean, that, that's a business mission, not an artistic mission. Uh, and the artistic mission of these presses, hopefully, is to give, to, to expand the range of voices that we can encounter and in, and to, to broaden the ways we can encounter them, whether they ultimately become ebook small publishers, whether they are doing those luxury editions of books that we love, you know, which I tend to love getting. I mean, like I'm getting the collected stories of Robert Silverberg at the moment, which I love and adore. Uh, so, you know, it's like, is it different? Yeah, I guess it is. I think it is. I think it's a healthy thing. I don't think it's going to go away. I think that the, uh, the, the, you're right. The ebook market, the, the 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 developing markets are going to make small presses much more viable. Uh, and uh, when I say make a living, I guess you're right. A lot of the publishers don't. But one of the things that my experience with small presses has been generally is that the authors do get paid. The authors may not get paid enormous amounts of money, but sure. you know, unless you're an Ursula Le Guin or or, or Stephen King, you're not going to get paid a lot of money for a short story collection by a New York. Publisher. No, no. Uh, and, so. I mean, so yeah. So they're markets. They're significant markets, and sometimes an author who doesn't have a book out uh, can get a collection of short stories out through a small press that yeah. uh, that gives them some traction in the field. I'm thinking of uh, uh, David Levine. I like a lot. His, his collection of short stories uh, probably would never have been picked up, but it, it gave him a solidity in the field that he wouldn't have had just from a oh, scattered sure. magazine publication. Or, or even a, a very dear friend of ours, at least when it comes to short stories, uh, I mean, sorry, a, a very dear friend of ours anyway, but when it comes to her career and short stories, I think I've qualified it properly, uh, Ellen Clages. Uh, yes. She's had major novels come out from Viking, but her collection came out from Tachyon, and it was a very major collection, of a terrific, terrific book in Portable Childhoods. And one would assume most likely the people will publish her next book. Mm-hmm. Uh, you look at Small Beer, who, you know, yeah. who publish astounding books. I mean, they've got the Maureen McHugh collection coming out at World Fantasy, I think. But they're also going to do the Kids Johnson collection, which would be, of, of all the books that are coming out in the next year, in the top four or five that I'm looking forward to. So, you know. One, yeah, when you mention something like the Maureen... McHugh collection, or for that matter, uh, or, or, or the David Levine collection, the various, uh, all sorts of, the, the um, Mary Rickard collections, and there's a sense in this, there's a sense in the commercial end of the field that, oh, these, these are only selling a, a few thousand copies at best, yeah. and yet, and yet if you look outside that, go to something like there's an organization called the Association of Writing Programs, which is the Convention of Creative Writing Programs, yeah. and I've been to one of those, and I know people have been to others. I would say most of the mainstream short story writers, the literary short story writers in the world, if they could sell two or 3,000 copies, would be very happy. Sure, sure. The, the bulk of publishing of short story collections, not just in science fiction and fantasy, but mm-hmm. in the world is in, in, the, in the case of small presses. And most of these small presses, it seems to me, are not as professionally run as many of the ones we have in our field. Wow. Well, that, well I don't know about how professionally run uh, non-science fiction small presses are. I was going to jump in and say... Let's not equate science fiction with uh, professional. I misheard you for a second. I was going to oh. jump in and say, let's not uh, mistake professionalism for anything to do with finance. Because most of the small presses I've encountered, in fact, all of the small presses I've worked with over my career have been very professional in almost every way. And even if there's been a hiccup here and there, they've proven to be a delight to deal with. Oh, no, that was the point. I was, that was yeah. the essential yeah. point I yeah. was making, is that they are at least as professional as the ones in the mainstream. My point is, whatever the Maureen McHugh collection does, and she's a terrific short story writer and doesn't write enough, as far as I'm concerned, whatever business it does will be at least comparable and probably superior to the business 
that uh, a, a new MFA publishing a group of short stories. Sure, oh, some sure, sure. In other words, I see, even in that field, even in what we consider the small press field in our area, there's a lot more support for short story collections than there is out in the world at large. Absolutely. I mean, I, I will tell you, you can tell that I'm that I have sort of at, at, at my base these days, sort of a, the, the mindset of both a small press buyer and publisher and also, you know, a collector. I mean, uh, at the mouth of bees is the, um, I'm sorry, at the mouth of the river of bees is the Kids Johnson collection coming out next yeah. August from Small Beer. And I'm disappointed <laughs> because it's not coming out as a hardcover. It's only coming out as a trade paperback. I'm kind of like, oh, I want the hardcover. And that's sort of the collector, small press buyer in me as well. Not not the kind of lunatic who hopes he could resell it, just I want the prettier, nicer edition, and that's what those guys do. Anyway. Anyway. We're rambling, or even if we're not rambling, we're continuing on further than we should. The, we're the, focused like a laser on these topics. I don't know what you're <laughs> Focused like a laser. You're a funny man, Gary. Oh, <laughs> Funny, funny man. I, I wish you were coming to World Fantasy. I understand why you're not, but I wish you were. I know. It should be delightful. It's going to be huge somebody was, tell, somebody was telling me today I need to make my hotel reservations for World Fantasy in Toronto in 2012. Are they available? I'll make mine now. I don't know. I'm going to find out tomorrow. I mean, you have to be there, right? I have to be there. I'm Toastmaster. Aren't they going to book a room for you? I mean, that'd be nice. Hello, World yeah. Fantasy Toronto people. You're going to book him a room, aren't you? Go on. <laughs> oh, yeah. Listen. Oh, yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> they're going to listen to me. <laughs> but yes, well, on that scrambled note, we've got through it, you know, episode 71. <laughs> episode 71 stands and sits in front of us. You said at the beginning we were episode 70. 70, that's right. Well, 71's in front of us. This is episode well, 70. Well, 71's in front of us, absolutely. We'll see what happens then. On our on our race to episode 100. Um. Yeah, and then and then we'll have our second anniversary. Will we do something this time? Um, <laughs> will we do not. Will we do anything for for episode 100? I don't know. Anyway, we shall see. These right. major questions to be answered in other in other installments of the Coot Street podcast. All right. We will talk to you. I'll talk to you again. Take good care, Gary. You too.